very small animal. The piglet lived in a very grand house in the middle of a beech tree, and the beech tree was in the middle of the forest, and the piglet lived in the middle of the house. Next to his house, there was a piece of broken board which had Trespassers W on it. When Christopher Robin asked the piglet what it meant, he said it was his grandfather's name, and it had been in the family for a long time. Christopher Robin said, you couldn't be called Trespassers W. And Piglet said, yes, you could, because his grandfather was. And it was short for Trespassers Will, which was short for Trespassers William. And his father had two names, in case he lost one. Trespassers after an uncle, and William after Trespassers. And so we're introduced to Piglet in the third chapter of Winnie the Pooh. Piglet, who craves security, he lives in the middle of a house, in the middle of a tree, in the middle of a forest. Piglet, who wants to be somebody, so he invents a grandfather named Trespassers William. Piglet, a squeaky voice with pink cheeks. Piglet, the very small animal. Unlike Pooh, who simply is and does, Piglet agonizes. For example, when Piglet and Pooh fell into the gravel pit. Pooh, he went on nervously and came a little closer. Do you think we're in a trap? Pooh hadn't thought about it at all, but now he nodded. For suddenly he remembered how he and Piglet had once made a Pooh trap for heffalumps. And he guessed what had happened. He and Piglet had fallen into a heffalump trap for poos. That's what it was. What happens when the heffalump comes? asked Piglet, trembling, when he had heard the news. Perhaps he won't notice you, Piglet, said Pooh encouragingly, because you're a very small animal. But he'll notice you, Pooh. He'll notice me, and I shall notice him, said Pooh, thinking it out. We'll notice each other for a long time, and then he'll say, Ho, ho! Piglet shivered a little at the thought of that ho, ho, and his ears began to twitch. What will you say, he asked. Pooh tried to think of something he would say, but the more he thought, the more he felt that there's no real answer to a ho-ho said by a heffalump in the sort of voice this heffalump was going to say it in. I shan't say anything, said Pooh at last. I shall just hum to myself as if I was waiting for something. Then perhaps he'll say ho-ho again, suggested Piglet anxiously. He will, said Pooh. Piglet's ears twitched so quickly that he had to lean them against the side of the trap to keep them quiet. He will say it again, said Pooh, and I shall go on humming. And that will upset him, because when you say ho-ho twice in a gloating sort of way, and the other person only hums, you suddenly find, just as you begin to say it the third time, that that... Well, you find what Pooh means to say is 
it then isn't ho-ho-ish anymore. At least that's what we think he means. But he'll say something else, said Piglet. That's just it. He'll say, what's all this? And then I shall say, this is a very good idea, Piglet, which I've just thought of. I shall say, it's a trap for a heffalump, which I've made, and I'm waiting for the heffalump to fall in, and I shall go on humming. That will unsettle him. Pooh, cried Piglet, you've saved us. Have I, said Pooh, not feeling quite sure. But Piglet was quite sure, and his mind ran on, and he saw Pooh and the heffalump talking to each other, and he thought suddenly, and a little sadly, that it would have been rather nice if it had been Piglet and the heffalump talking so grandly to each other, and not Pooh, much as he loved Pooh. Pooh, cried Piglet, you've saved us. Have I, said Pooh, not feeling quite sure. But Piglet was quite sure, and his mind ran on, and he saw Pooh and the heffalump talking to each other, and he thought, and a little sadly, that it would have been rather nice if it had been Piglet and heffalump talking so grandly to each other, and not Pooh, much as he loved Pooh, because he really had more brain than Pooh, and the conversation would go better if he and not Pooh were doing one side of it. And it would be comforting afterwards in the evenings to look back on the day when he answered a heffalump back as bravely as if the heffalump wasn't there. It seemed so easy now. He knew just what he would say. And that's how it was in the gra gravel pit until Christopher Robin came along looking down and saw Piglet and Pooh. Then things became a bit complicated. Ho, ho, said Christopher Robin loudly and suddenly. Piglet jumped six inches in the air with surprise and anxiety. But Pooh went on dreaming. It's the heffalump, thought Piglet nervously. Now then, he hummed it in his throat a little so that none of the words should stick. And then in the most delightfully easy way, he said, Tra-la-la. Tra-la-la. But he didn't look around, because if you look around and see a very fierce heffalump looking down at you, sometimes you forget what you were going to say. Rum-tum-tiddle-um, said Christopher Robin in a voice like Pooh's. He said the wrong thing, thought Piglet anxiously. He ought to have said ho-ho again. Perhaps I better say it for him. And as fiercely as he could, Piglet said, Ho, ho! How did you get there, Piglet? said Christopher Robin in his ordinary voice. This is terrible, thought Piglet. First he talks in Pooh's voice. Then he talks in Christopher Robin's voice. He's doing it so to unsettle me. And now being completely unsettled, he said very quickly and squeakily, this is a trap for poos. I'm waiting for, I'm waiting to fall in it. Ho, ho, what's all this? And then I say, ho, ho, again. What, said Christopher Robin? A trap for ho-hos, said Piglet huskily. I've just made it and I'm waiting for the ho-hos to come. Come. Not very impressive, we're afraid. Oh, hello, Piglet. 
Who's that rough-looking man I've seen following you about lately? He's my new bodyguard, squeaked Piglet. Bodyguard? Why in the world do you need a bodyguard? Can't you look out for yourself? I suppose, replied Piglet, but I feel so much more secure this way. He looks pretty tough. I hope you checked his references. References? Yes, from places he worked before. Does he have a bad record? Arrests? Jail sentences? That sort of thing? I, I don't think so, said Piglet. Well, I suppose it's all right, if you really think you need protection. By the way, what's happened to the old family silverware? What? You know, the silver knives, forks, spoons, and things. They're not in the drawer where they used to be. I was just wondering if anything... No, Piglet blurted out. He couldn't have. I mean, they couldn't be. They've been misplaced or something. Yes, that's it. They must be. They, I, excuse me, I must be going goodbye. That's odd. We might point out here that Taoism has always been fond of very small animals. Aside from animals themselves, which Confucianists saw as mere things to eat, sacrifice, or pull plows and wagons, the very small animals of traditional Confucianist-dominated society, Chinese society were women, children, and the poor, stepped on by greedy merchants, landholders, and governmental officials. The poor were at the very bottom of the Confucianist social scale. To put it in another way, they weren't on it at all. Women, even those of wealthy families, especially those of wealthy families, weren't much better off, as the Confucianists practiced arranged marriage, polygamy, foot-binding, foot-breaking actually, and other customs so repressive to women that no one in today's West could comprehend them. Children didn't have a very jolly time of it either. To the staunch Confucianist, children existed to carry on the family line, unquestioningly obey their parents in every matter, and take every care of them in their old age, not to have ideas, ideals, and interests of their own. Under Confucianism, a father could justifiably kill a son who disobeyed or disgraced him, as such behavior was considered criminal. In contrast, Taoism held that respect was something one earned, and that if Big Daddy misbehaved, his family had the right to rebel. That applied to the emperor and his family, his subjects as well. If the emperor was a tyrant, the people had the right to take him off the throne. High Confucianist officials lived in constant fear of Taoists and Buddhist-influenced secret societies that were ever ready to defend the stepped-on and attempted to topple the dragon throne if conditions became intolerable, which they often did. Taoist sympathies were always with the underdog, with the outcasts and the unfortunates of, of Chinese society. 
including those financially ruined by the tricks of corrupt merchants and officials and forced to become brothers of the green woods or outlaws and guests of rivers and lakes, vagabonds. The Chinese martial arts were developed primarily by Taoist and Buddhist monks in order to defend the defenseless, the defenseless, excuse me, and enable them to defend themselves. They might better be termed the anti-martial arts, as they were employed not only against armed bandits, but also against the soldiers of warlords and governing bodies, whenever they turned their swords against the weak. While Buddhist martial artists tend to concentrate on the hard forms of defense from which evolved the forceful and direct karate and taekwondo, Taoists tend to concentrate on the soft forms, such as the fluid and indirect tai chi chuan and pa kuan cheng, similar to but more sophisticated than judo and aikido. Encountering what they saw, as abuse of power, Taoist writers did with their communicative skills what Taoist mar martial artists did with disarming moves and pressure points, utilizing the vehicles of literary fact and fiction, they publicized the misdeeds of the powerful and ridiculed the devious, the arrogant, the pompous, and the cruel. Although annoyed Confucianists often attempted to put an end to these writings, they were generally unsuccessful, as the sympathies of the common people were against them. Considering that the high and mighty Confucianists tend to have little respect for animals, and that they sometimes refer to the lesser people of China as pigs and dogs, it's not surprising that Taoist writers recorded many animal stories descriptions of actual occurrences as well as imaginary tales in which maligned creatures such as mice, snakes, and birds of prey demonstrated virtuous conduct that prestigious people would do well to emulate. In these stories, the courage, affection, faithfulness, and honesty of animals are contrasted with the pretentiousness and hypocrisy of wealthy landholders merchants, and government officials. As an early example, Chuangse wrote, The officer of prayer went to the pig pen in his official robes and spoke to the pigs. Why should you complain, he asked. I will feed you grain for three months, then I will fast for ten days while you eat and keep watch over you for three days after that. Then I'll spread fresh mats and place you on the carved sacrificial stand before dispatching you to the spirit world. Considering all that I'll be doing for you, why should you feel uneasy? If the official had been truly concerned with the welfare of the pigs, he would have fed them bran and chafe and left them alone. But he looked at the situation from the point of view of his own prestige. He preferred to enjoy the robes and cap of his privileged office, to ride about in ornamented carriage, knowing that when he died, he would be carried in splendor to his grave. A magnificent canopy spread above his coffin. If he had been concerned with the welfare of the pigs, he would not have considered these things to be important. Wealthy Confucianists weren't the only targets of Taoist writers. 
like the Marx Brothers or Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, the Taoist satirized big ego at any level of society. This tendency can be seen in the following story, The Pear Seed, by Qing Dynasty writer Fung Sung Ling. A well-dressed farmer was selling his pears in the town marketplace. As they were large and delicious, he was soon taking in quite a bit of money. A passing Taoist dressed in patched cotton and carrying a small shovel on his back stopped by the farmer's wagon and asked for a pear. The farmer told him to go away. The Taoist refused to leave. The farmer grew angrier and angrier. Soon he was shouting at the top of his voice. But there are hundreds of pears in your wagon, the Taoist calmly pointed out. I'm only asking for one. Why be so upset? More and more people gathered, attracted by the commotion. Some onlookers told the farmers to toss the poor man a bruised pear. The farmer refused. Finally, seeing that the uproar was about to turn into a riot, someone bought a pear and handed it to the Taoist. After warmly thanking his benefactor, the Taoist turned to the crowd. We followers of the way are revolted by petty greed, he told them. Let me share this beautiful fruit with you kind people. No one wanted to take a piece of the Taoist's pear. The specters instead... I'm sorry, the spectators insisted that he eat it himself. All I need is a seed to plant, the Taoist replied, and then I'll be able to repay you. He ate the fruit except for one small seed. With his little shovel, he dug a hole, dropped the seed into it, covered it up. Then he called for heated water. Someone brought some from a nearby shop, and the crowd watched it in intense fascination as the Taoist watered the ground where the seed was planted. Suddenly, a small shoot appeared, which quickly grew into a tree. Branches and leaves shot out in great profusion. The tree blossomed, then bore a tremendous crop of large, luscious pears. The Taoist distributed the fruit among the spectators, Soon all of it was gone. Then with his small shovel, he chopped down the tree. Waving to the crowd, he happily departed, dragging the tree behind him. All this time, the greedy farmer had been staring open-mouthed. Now he turned back to his pears, only to find that they were gone. Shaking off the effects of the Taoist spell, he realized what had happened to them. He saw that a section of his wagon's harnessing pole, the same diameter as the trunk of the pear tree, had been chopped away. After a frantic search, the farmer found the pole leaning against the wall where the Taoist had left it. As for the Taoist, he was nowhere to be seen. The crowd roared with laughter in appreciation of the instructive joke. Did someone just come in? Oh, so you're Piglet's new bodyguard. Well, well, you got a problem with that, buddy? No, not at all. Good. I wouldn't get any ideas if I was you, fella. Oh, yes, you would. 
you get all sorts of ideas, such as how easy it is to pull someone off his feet with a loose rug, like the one you're standing on. What are you talking about? Oh, nothing. Just make yourself at home. Thanks. In order to understand Taoist support of the underdog, one needs to understand the Taoist attitude towards power, from the power of the universe on down. As with other matters, the Taoist view was historically more or less the opposite of the Confucianists. The Confucianist conception of heavenly power, vague though it tended to be, bore a certain resemblance to the Middle Eastern Old Testament image of God. The Confucianists called it Tayin, sky, heaven, or supreme ruler. Tayin was seen as masculine, sometimes ferociously so. It needed to be appeased with sacrifices and rituals. It took sides. It granted authority. It transmitted sovereignty directly to the emperor, the son of heaven. From him, dominion spread downward and outward, from the highest officials to the lowest, from the major clans to the minor families. Dayan was imagined as dazzling in appearance, hence the brilliant colors used by the imperial family and the great clans. It was said to grant material prosperity as a reward, hence the Confucianists' equation of wealth with goodness. In a word, it was considered awesome, something to fear rather than love. Hence the emphasis on unquestioning obedience to superiors and the absence of words such as compassion from the Confucianists' vocabulary. Such was the image of heavenly power that Confucianists presented to the common people. At the community level, it was shown in the courtroom treatment of complaints, witnesses, and the accused, not one of whom was allowed legal defense counsel or defense. All had to kneel on a hard floor, sometimes on chains, before the magistrate, who as the emperor's representative in local government had the right to extract testimony and confessions by torture. And since under Chinese law no criminal could be sentenced until he had confessed, torture was the order of the day, hence the development of Chinese torture. Because of centuries of this sort of intimidation, the majority of Chinese have tended to avoid, whenever possible, the workings of official government. Unfortunately, this unwillingness to openly participate has allowed one tyrant after another, including those of the present totalitarian bureaucracy, to gain the main and maintain control of the nation. Unlike the Confucianists, Taoists saw the power of heaven as both masculine and feminine, as symbolized by the Taoist Tai Chi, the circle divided by a curved line into light and dark, or male and female halves, heavenly power at work in the natural world. However, what Lao Tse called the mother of 10,000 things has always been seen by Taoists as mostly feminine in its action. It is gentle like flowing water. It's humble and generous like a fertile valley, feeding all who come to it. It's, it is hidden, subtle, and mysterious like a landscape glimpsed through mist. 
It takes no sides, grants no authority. It cannot be influenced or appeased by sacrifices and rituals. In dispensing justice, as in all things, it operates with a light touch, an invisible hand. As Lao Tse put it, heaven's net has wide mesh, but nothing slips through it. Shying away from... Oh, I'll end right here. Excuse me, sorry about that. As Lao Tse put it, Heaven's net has wide meshes, but nothing slips through. Shying away from displays of arrogance and egotism, it communicates its deepest secrets not to high government officials, pompous scholars, or wealthy landowners, but to penniless monks, little children, animals, and quote-unquote fools. If it can be said to be biased in any way, it's in favor of the humble, the weak, the small. And that brings us back to Piglet. As anyone can see, there are disadvantages to being a very small animal. And one of those disadvantages is that bigger animals will try to take advantage of you. For example, let's recall Rabbit's famous plan to kidnap Baby Roo. Practically, as soon as Kanga and Roo arrived in the forest, Rabbit decided that they ought to leave. We're not sure why, Rabbits are like that sometimes. Anyway, Rabbit's plan involved, which in Rabbit's terminology meant, took advantage of, Piglet and Pooh. The idea was Pooh would distract Kanga by talking to her, perhaps reciting some of his poetry, which ought to distract anyone, and ouch, that was uncalled for Pooh. Was it? asked Pooh. I thought I heard you calling it. And while Kanga's attention was diverted, Rabbit would place Piglet in her pouch, telling her it was Rue, then run off with Rue. Afterward, when Kanga had discovered that Rue was missing, then Rabbit, Pooh, and Piglet, all three of them, mind you, would say, Aha! very loudly. As Rabbit explained it, a loud, aha, would mean they had kidnapped Rue and would give him back only if Kanga were to promise to leave the forest and never return. Kanga would grasp this meeting immediately, Rabbit said. As soon as Rabbit, Pooh, and Piglet, all three, mind you, said, aha, it went wrong, as clever plans by Rabbit always do, because first, Kangas think and respond differently from rabbits. And second, as things turned out, there was no loud group spoken, aha, to intimidate her, whether or not she would have understood what it was supposed to mean anyway. The first part of the plan went smoothly enough. They came across Kanga and Roo in the forest. Pooh distracted Kanga. Piglet jumped into Kanga's pouch and Pooh ran off with Rue. Unsuspecting Kanga bounced home with bounce, bounce, piglet, bounce, bounce, bounce. Pooh remained behind, practicing thud. Kanga's jumps, crash. It wasn't until Kanga reached her house that the trouble began. 
Of course, as soon as Kanga unbuttoned her pocket, she saw what had happened. Just for a moment, she thought she was frightened, and then she knew she wasn't, for she felt quite sure that Christopher Robin would never let any harm happen to Rue. So she said to herself, If they are having a joke with me, I will have a joke with them. Now then, Rue, dear, she said, as she took Piglet out of her pocket, bedtime. Aha, said Piglet, as well as he could after his terrifying journey. But it wasn't a very good aha, and Kanga didn't seem to understand what it meant. Bath first, said Kanga in a cheerful voice. Aha, said Piglet again, looking around anxiously for the others. But the others weren't there. I'm not at all sure, said Kanga in a thoughtful voice, that it wouldn't be a very good idea to have a cold bath this evening. Would you like that, Rue, dear? Whether Rue would have or not, Piglet didn't. But at last the cold bath was over. Now, said Kanga, there's your medicine, and then bed. W what medicine, said Piglet? To make you grow big and strong, dear. You don't want to grow up small and weak like Piglet, do you? Well, then... At that moment, there was a knock at the door. Come in, said Kanga, and in came Christopher Robin. Christopher Robin, Christopher Robin, cried Piglet. Tell Kanga who I am. She keeps saying I'm Rue. I'm not Rue, am I? Christopher Robin looked at him very carefully and shook his head. You can't be Rue, he said, because I've just seen Rue playing in, at, in Rabbit's house. Well, said Kanga, fancy that. Fancy my making a mistake like that. There you are, said Piglet. I told you so. I'm Piglet. Christopher Robin shook his head again. Oh, you're not Piglet, he said. I know Piglet well, and he's a different color. Piglet began to say that this was because he had just had a bath, and then he thought that perhaps he wouldn't say that. And as he opened his mouth to say something else, Kanga slipped in the medicine spoon, then he, then patted him on the back and told him that it was really quite a, a nice taste when you got used to it. What an ordeal. Well, that's what happens. Hey, what's that noise outside? Oh, Piglet's bodyguard. I'd forgotten you were here. It's some sort of siren, I think. Let me take a look. Yes, it's a police car. What? That's strange. It's pulling up right in front of our house. Get away from that window. Of course. I didn't mean to... Uh, where'd he go? Excuse me, I have to answer the door. Little Piglet held back by imaginings and fears yearned to be someone is the last animal who might expect to accomplish anything of importance and yet piglet is the material from which heroes are made beneath the stalwart exterior of most any courageous rescuer gallant fighter or great achiever a piglet can be found 
if one looks closely enough. So it has always been, as history clearly shows, and so we're sure it always will be. In many ways, Piglet may appear the least significant of the Pooh characters, yet he is the only one of them to change, to grow, to become, to become more than what he was in the first place. And in the end, he does this not by denying his smallness, but by applying it for the good of others. He accomplishes what he does without accumulating a large ego. Inside, he remains a very small animal, but a different kind of very small animal from what he was before. For now, though he hesitates and dreams, he has a good deal to go through before the great storm at the end of the house at Pooh Corner, which changes his life forever. How would you sum up Piglet's situation at this point, Pooh? With a song, said Pooh. Wonderful. I was hoping you would. Er, um... Hey, sailors. So... We've come to the end of the chapter, Very Small Animal, where Pooh sings the song. And I'm going to do you guys a favor and not sing the song, <laughs> but I will read it to you. So here's the ending, part eight, if you will. Animals so shy and small. Dreaming you were bold and tall, you hesitate, all sensitive, waiting for a chance to live. Time is swift, it races by, opportunities are born and die. Still you wait and will not try, a bird with wings who dares not rise and fly. But that you you want to see is not you and never will be. No one else will ever do the special things that wait inside of you. You can be a guiding star if you make the most of who you are and the sensitivity that you are now ashamed to see can be developed even more so you can find the hidden doors to place no one's been to pl sorry to places no one's been before. And the pride you'll feel inside is not the kind that makes you fall. It's the kind that recognizes the bigness found in being small. Thank you, Pooh. That was excellent. Well, said Pooh, it was better than I thought it would be. Along the way to developing and applying sensitivity, there are things a piglet needs to watch out for. And one of them is found in the next chapter.